Hey, welcome back to my podcast, History Hater Turned History Major. My name is Emily, and lately I've been a bit stuck in memory. With COVID, transitioning into adulthood, and moving away from all of my friends, growing and changing, there's a lot of possibility, and yet it makes you think about the past even more sometimes. It's not just my memories I've been thinking about, though. It's memories on the whole. How do memories evolve and change over time? What keeps memory alive and what lets it fade? These processes get complicated as we move from the individual to the group level, to society, to cultures, to nations. They get more complicated as we try and figure out what should be remembered, what should be forgotten, if anything should be forgotten at all. History in this way is a selection process, selecting the past that stay with us into the present and for the future. So in this episode, I'm asking the question, how do memorials lend themselves to history as activism? And what is the historian's role in activism? And using the memorial to the emergencies of Europe as a framing for these questions. I have a lot of thoughts, even more questions, and close to no answers. Memorials are one of the mediums in which history and memory stay alive. They exist in the retentive function of memory, preserving an event from forgetting and erasure. Memorials, we've all seen them, we've probably been to a few. They're sites of commemoration, sites of remembering. The process of creating memorials, memorialization, is preserving the memory of people, places, and events in history. It is the active process of preserving sites, people, and memories to ensure they last to tell their story. Memorials contribute to society through awakening conscience for suffering and change, offering lessons to prevent future injustices and integrating the dark pasts into national memory. Memorials are designed intentionally. They have specific audiences and specific purposes, but they often outlast these intended audiences and purposes. So conversations about responsible memorialization cannot stop at remembering what was, but must continue to discuss what is, what could be, what is wanted, and what is needed. In this, memorials can be used as activism. Memorials as activism. Heard that one before? To define it, it might help to contrast to the term memorials of activism. So when you have a memorial of something, it's about that thing. It's something in the past that you're remembering the history of. Memorials as activism brings history into the now. It is taking the memorial as a tool for activism. Rather than describing the past, you're relating the past to further a movement today. It's for activism. Most theories of memorialization focus on the building process, looking at what social and logistical factors had to be in place for a need to memorialize to be recognized. But where these theories and discussions sometimes fall short is analyzing the continuation and the preservation and the change over time of memorialization. Memorials don't exist in a snapshot of time. Neither do historical events for that matter, because they are part of larger temporal and spatial processes. They impact identities and narratives and histories. And though we may never be able to say for certain that A happened because of B, contingency exists within the historical thread. This is my long-winded way of saying that the past is past, but the past exists within the present that gazes back. Yes, that rhymed on purpose. The past is intrinsically part of today. And then there's memory activism, which is relevant especially when discussing memorials and the example case I'm going to be talking about today, the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe. 
Memory activism is defined as a knowledge-based effort for consciousness raising and political change, a commemoration of a contested past in order to influence public debate, primarily towards greater equality, plurality, and reconciliation. Memory activists could use the memorial to address issues of distortion, education on the Holocaust, collective amnesia, and how forgetting as a strategy for reconciliation does harm even when it has benefits. The debates about the focus of the memorial, the location, and the issue of a final solution during the memorial's creation process point to an activist reading of the memorial to fight Holocaust distortion and preserve memory. An analysis of the ways in which memorials lend themselves to history as activism clarifies that the historian has a role in memory activism, in memory activism, and this role is correction, expansion, and revision as to highlight the past for its own sake, balanced with the ways history informs present-day movements. Fifty years after the Holocaust, the creation of the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe began. In those fifty years, the world tried to work through the devastation and atrocity, and memorialized various sites, people, and memories of the Holocaust. From concentration camps to perpetrator sites, to the creation of museums, to extensive literature on the subject, to laws and ethical expectations, the Holocaust is forever ingrained in the world as we know it. When the German government determined a memorial should be created to remember the murdered Jews of Europe, the intention was clear. They would be remembered and commemorated. To determine who would design the memorial, there was competition, which only added to the controversy of the whole thing. It sounds kind of surreal, people competing to design this memorial. Debate surrounded the process. Why only the murdered Jews of Europe? Why in Berlin? What are the national reasons for remembrance? Will it be a place for Jews to mourn lost Jews, a place for Germans to mourn lost Jews, or a place for Jews to remember what Germans once did to them? These questions followed the competition's jury, the public, academics, and the ultimate designer of the memorial, Peter Eisenman. 2,711 concrete blocks. No inscriptions, no significance to their size. This field of steel is just that, a square of concrete blocks constructed by everyday people. There is essentially no significance to the blocks themselves. It was not about imagery, it was not about marking, it was not about a cemetery, Peter Esimon said. The fact that it could look like a cemetery is possible. It could also look like a field of corn. I was trying to do something that had no center, had no edge, had no meaning. That was dumb. D-U-M-B. And there's nothing in the city that's dumb, and therefore it was silent. It didn't speak. But the memorial is a symbol. A symbol that we've identified and agreed upon literally through competition and debate. Eisenman avoided imagery and representation. He avoided creating a center, an edge, a meaning. Eisenman said, I did not speak in the language of architecture. I spoke with its silence. Yet silence can speak louder than words. In silence, we only have ourselves and our memories. One of the powerful aspects of the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe is that its lack of being forces us to rely on memory, thought, and experience. And today, the majority of us have no memories of the Holocaust. And so instead, the types of memories we experience of the Holocaust at this memorial are different. They focus on here and now. And arguably, that's a misuse of history. However, this is where the memorialscape in Berlin has to be viewed as a collection, as something greater than one. Because each memorial, each concentration camp, each site of terror 
Together, they teach us about the past. Eisenman purposefully constructed the memorial to disconnect from nostalgia and instead focus on memory. Moving away from nostalgia allows interaction with new forms of memory and allows for moving through the past. Moving through the past allows for working through guilt to come to a place of responsibility, forgiveness, and accountability. No material object could compensate for the Holocaust. So this wasn't the purpose of the memorial. The memorial would put people on even footing with memory and come face to face with memory. Stumbling through the uneven footing between the concrete, one realizes that the feeling of instability will never leave the site and it should not. For with stability can come closure and closure is the one thing we should never reach when remembering the Holocaust. Why this memorial? Why am I talking about it? Well, I'm glad you asked. I had always been intrigued by the way Germany was held globally responsible for the Holocaust and the implications of such responsibility compared to numerous atrocities that have occurred in history that get pushed under the rug. This idea of responsibility and memory, taking hold of memory rather than suppressing it, I think is extremely valuable and resilient. If a national identity hides its shortcomings, buries its dark pasts, these cracks in the foundation are bound to grow larger and eventually require attention. Likewise, guilt is not a sustainable emotion for individual people or for nations. So thinking about what responsibility and guilt look like at this large scale bridges together psychology with history in really interesting ways. I chose to deep dive on the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe because I visited the memorial during a semester I studied in Berlin. I had read about the memorial, but nothing captures experiencing it for oneself. I walked away with so many thoughts and reflections and emotions about the Holocaust as a whole and how we remember. The more academic, scholarly reason I chose this memorial is that it generated more controversy and debate than other Holocaust memorials for multiple reasons. One, it was not an existing site related to the Holocaust. It was not a site of terror, nor a site of commemoration. Rather, it was a site with enough space, and it also lies in central Berlin, surrounded by government buildings and tourist attractions such as the United States Embassy, Tiergarten, Brandenburger Gate, and Hitler's old bunkers. Two, the site was designed and implemented by an American with Jewish heritage, but given his distance from Germany, many argued he was not close enough to the Holocaust to have a right to design the memorial. And three, the memorial was only to the murdered Jews of Europe and didn't consider non-European Jews or other groups of people that were targeted. The memorial is passed daily by tourists and locals and government officials. To some people, that feels careless. But the memorial is integrated into daily life such that people could accidentally come upon the memorial. But it's not so integrated into daily life that it could be ignored or overlooked. It demands attention and engagement, good, bad, or indifferent. Through its location, the memory is socially visible, and this space is socially produced continuously by the visitors that walk through the spaces between the blocks. In its presence and visibility, collective memory of the Holocaust is reinforced constantly. This memory in turn reinforces notions of national identity and its relationship to the past, to the atrocity, to guilt and responsibility. Space is multiple and is going to be interpreted differently by different people, and these various layers of space and place aren't always clear. Eisenman desired to create these intense, powerful emotions, and for so many visitors, this goal was achieved. However, for many visitors, an entirely different experience is realized. For some, this becomes a place of play. For some, this place holds no meaning. 
For some, a world of concrete feels like a faraway dystopia with no ties to the here and now. Intention does not equal execution nor reception, and Eisenman knew that when he created the memorial and he embraced that, because each person will come to their own conclusions, and that keeps the memory alive. Space can and maybe should have boundaries, but we must continuously assess whether these boundaries should be restricted or expanded. Memorials are very public, under the scrutiny of the public side, the governments, the scholars, the victims, and the perpetrators. So when we're thinking about how we can use memorials as activism, involving historians in that process can mitigate potential misuses and pitfalls. In order to respect the historical, cultural, and sensitive context of memorials and what they are remembering and commemorating, activists can turn to historians' works or work directly with historians in the design, production, and preservation processes. Using the past for today, like using memorials for activist projects, we risk being presentist, of using the past solely for our own purposes and disrespecting the memory and history of the event for itself. This is where historians can help activists to balance contextualization of the past while bringing the past into today's context. In the case of memorializing past atrocities, if not other cases as well, using memorials as activism should fight for memory and for continuous working through the past for the sake of the past, for the sake of now, and for the sake of the future. The historian has a threefold role in memory activism and memorialization, and these are interpretive, expansive, and corrective. The interpretive role involves bringing in new interpretations, perceptions, and ideas into the historical record. Historians can lay out the meaning of an event, identify how it affected the context in which it occurred, determine which events warrant further attention and explanation, and consider the motives of actors and stakeholders. The expansive role of the historian is to extend the boundaries of the historical record. This may include extending the boundaries of the Holocaust to understand how it spread across the world in thought, education, perception, and extending the spatial boundaries of the places affected by the Holocaust. Historians can extend and challenge the temporal boundary to consider the Holocaust in the context of the long durée, which is the long picture, taking a step back to see the contingency and causality and links over time in history. It may include asking how the Holocaust continues in memory today. Lastly, the historian can extend the participatory boundaries by using the memorial to the murder Jews of Europe to draw attention to the fact that it doesn't tell the whole story of who was affected, and maybe it shouldn't. So what still needs to be done? They can point our attention to all of the memorials that exist about the Holocaust and how looking at all of these memorials as a whole picture paints the past in a new way that would be missed if we just looked at one memorial. They can highlight maybe who the Nazis were, everyday people. Who were they before the Holocaust? And how can we use this information to protect against another mass genocide to the same degree? And lastly, the historian can have a corrective role in memory activism and memorialization. Distortion is an ominous threat to the Holocaust and maybe more prevalent today than denial. For reference, Holocaust denial is the assertion that the mass systematic extermination of the Jewish people by Nazis did not happen. There's a really great book and documentary on a court case called Denial, which I have linked in the description and I definitely recommend checking out if you're interested. Distortion, on the other hand, is the minimization or misrepresentation of the Holocaust. In and of itself, it is a misuse of history, memory, activism, and memorialization. 
Because distortion is harder to recognize and measure, the Holocaust is, and always has been, in danger of being exploited and misused. For this reason, various organizations are fighting against distortion of the Holocaust. In their corrective role, historians can help understand Holocaust distortion, the risks of distortion, signs of distortion, how to combat distortion, what constitutes distortion. They can ask where does distortion exist in the historical record of the Holocaust today, and how can the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe be corrected in its pitfalls through conversation, education, and continued inquiry. They can take historical analogies of the Holocaust and offer interpretations and corrections to the benefits and inaccuracies of using analogies when discussing the Holocaust. A historian can ask, when did we let go? What did we let go of? How do we talk about the past in a way that doesn't rely on guilt, but responsibility? During the competition and debates around what the memorial should be, one historian, James E. Young, was asked, can an imperfect process result in a good memorial? His response, yes, for perfect is always the enemy of good. If the process was perfect, it would be saying that the memorial to the merged Jews of Europe was sufficient to memorialize, commemorate, and remember the Holocaust. If the process was perfect, we would be denying the complexity and sensitivity such history holds. If the process was perfect, then it would be complete. Responsibility would be satisfied. Memory would be finalized. Historians and scholars argue whether or not the past should be objective, preserved for what it was and is for its own sake. Others argue that history is for the present, to learn and grow, that the past is at the mercy of current conditions. However, the past is what it was and what it is and deserves the respect we would give to present conditions for their own sake. At the same time, we can learn a lot from the past, from history, about who we are, who we want to be, and the consequences of decisions and actions. In this tension, we have memorials, commemorating the past for what it was, but a selected past. A past that we not only want to keep alive in memory, but a past we want to learn from, either to idolize or diverge. For all of its pitfalls, successes, and controversy, the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe exists. So how do we keep it alive? How do we set guidelines for its use, for using memory and space responsibly? How do we remember? As time goes forward, as it always does, the subjective purposes and meanings of the past change. With these changing purposes comes the opportunity to forget or to remember. Memory and memorialization cannot settle on a final solution as the Nazis once did. Nor can the debate around the memorialization process cease, for once these conversations go, memory becomes static. The memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe lends itself to active, ongoing memory of the Holocaust, but requires thoughtful engagement. And this is where memory activists and historians step into the picture. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. You might have more questions about memorials, memorialization, history, historians, the Holocaust, and you're welcome. I have linked a number of sources in the description for you to dive deeper on the topic if you're interested. In truth, I'm still figuring out my questions as well. I could probably make an entire podcast series talking just about memory and history. You have no idea how many things I'd cut out of this. <laughs> but I hope you gained something from listening. And I think my biggest takeaway for you is that the past is not the past because of memory. 
and we have a responsibility to remember. How, in what ways, I'm not sure there's a right answer, but don't stop talking about it. Memory is imperfect. It's flawed. It's impacted by time. Memory changes over generations, and it changes as we change our narratives in our heads that we tell ourselves. So I want you to take this podcast and think about how memory is distorted, how history might be distorted, and what is our responsibility as historians, as individuals, as society, to fight that distortion of memory at large and of the Holocaust. Because the Holocaust is one of the most prominent events in history, and it's not the only atrocity. There are so many more that should be talked about. When we talk about the Holocaust, we don't want to minimize it through inappropriate comparisons and references, and at the same time, it's not completely in the past because these things still happen. Not at the same scale, not in the same way, but there's still so much that happens that we don't know about and that we don't talk about. There's so much in the past that we don't know about and talk about. And so in this way, we have to fight Holocaust distortion for the Holocaust, but also for the distortion and denial of all the atrocities in human history and in human present time.